the legendary Noah Smith makes his China Talk debut alongside longtime guest Matt Klein. We'll be talking China's economy, industrial policy, the 2024 election, and more with two of the sharpest econ substackers in the game. Welcome to China Talk, you two. Man, you should be a sports announcer. I, you're, you're, you're too good for the podcast circuit. As soon as someone offers me that uh, you know, UFC announcing contract, I will be there tomorrow. But in the meantime... We're stuck talking about the Chinese economy. Matt, what's up with it? Uh, up might not be the right word uh, that I'd use for this. Um, I mean, essentially, what we, there, there, there's sort of two perspectives that I would take. One is a, a much longer term sort of structural perspective of what's really been happening over the past 10, 15 years. And there we've seen basically the Chinese economy gradually slowing down from a peak growth rate in a, you know around the double digits that was reached around 2010, 2011. It's been slowing down pretty consistently before the pandemic to something around like a six, seven percent growth rate. And that's really sort of if you zoom out, that's essentially just where we are now is essentially a continuation of that trend and that process. And then separately, there's what happened with the pandemic and what's been happening more recently with the with the end of the COVID zero restrictions. So China, as you and your listeners all know, re reacted to the pandemic emerging uh, initially by essentially shutting down large swaths of the economy, literally locking people in homes and so forth. And that was extremely disruptive and repressive, but it did work in the short term uh, in 2020 anyway, sort of arresting the spread of the virus and allowed a degree of normality to return by the summer of 2020. But then as the virus mutated, it became a lot more contagious. By the time you get to 2022, that wasn't really working. So tried or government officials in China at the local level tried to do this again, places like Shanghai and, and in Guangzhou, and it just didn't really work to the same extent. It just did much more repression, much more shutdowns. The economy really had a rough time. You get to the end of 2022, there's essentially mass protests about the arbitrariness of this. You have a situation uh, where people are killed because there's a fire in a building they're not allowed to leave because of COVID restrictions. And, you know, eventually the the policy just, there's a complete turnaround at the end of 2022 saying, okay, we're going to get rid of all restrictions. And the hope was at the time that once that the restrictions were over, there would be presumably a few months of extreme disruption as a lot of people who had not gotten sick and had not been properly vaccinated would get sick and a lot would die. But that hopefully, if we're looking at sort of the bright side here, that by the end of that, you know, by say like March of this year, things would actually be pretty open and then the economy would really be able to, all the restrictions would be gone. You'd get a real robust rebound and, and wherever the economy should have been absent the pandemic is, is where we would have ended up relatively quickly. And what's interesting is that that didn't really happen. You did have a fair amount of death and disruption in, in January and February and, and December. Um, don't really know what those numbers are. may never know what those numbers really were. Um, but since then, you haven't really had the kind of rebound and growth you would have expected. All the data you'd be looking at that they publish on a monthly basis, things like the retail sales numbers, um, various measures of industrial production, investment, whatever, um, not really been doing very well at all. In fact, there's been essentially... You know, if you're looking at things like what is the trend in in, in retail spending, uh, you know, and what what has spending been like recently relative to that, it, it's remarkably poor. There's basically been the idea the idea there'd be some sort of revenge spending bounce back, the kind of thing you saw by the way in 2021. Um, we haven't really seen that this year um, in any meaningful way, and we know it's bad because in addition to just me looking at data and other people looking at the data that are published. There are also a lot of news articles about how the Chinese government uh, senior officials are trying to figure out what to do about this. And so that's the real indicator that something is bad, because if they think there's a problem, then like they're, they, they're probably seeing things that, even, that, that we're not seeing here. And so there have been various attempts to try to invigorate yeah. so the economy. So, Matt, there was a blockbuster article by Ling Lingwei in The Wall Street Journal basically making the case that um, she uh, is sort of ideologically opposed to like the you know, softness of bailing of sort of like doing helicopter, uh, uh, you know, throwing money out of helicopters and, and bailing out and, and trying to stimulate demand from a from a consumer perspective and how this is, you know, potentially a major, uh, you know, closing off one of the what what a lot of, you know, uh, Western, but particularly Chinese economists are increasingly saying is like the thing that China needs to do in order to start to um, uh, um, to, to, to 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 get the economy on track in the in the sort of near term. Um do you, well, I mean, who knows to the extent to that's true, but like how much would getting over that sort of like ideological hurdle of like actually being like a consumer demand driven economy and not one where um, this sort of the state support is only flowing towards, you know, semiconductors and, and, and electric vehicles or what have you. Um, 
how much does that open up the aperture for like smart uh, policymaking from a macro perspective? So first of all, I think that news story is entirely plausible because it's consistent with things we've seen in public, not necessarily that Xi Jinping himself has said, but that other people affiliated, you know, broadly speaking with sort of elite policymaking have said that they, they talk about the concern of welfareism and they say that we don't want to end up like Latin America. They're very explicit about this, um, that this is what essentially well, the reason why Latin America didn't develop past a certain point was because the governments just gave people stuff and then they didn't, they lost the will to work and what have you. That, that's sort of the official, that's the interpretation and, from a lot of uh, Chinese and just, um, policymaking uh, elites. And, and, and just like brief detour, um, uh, Noah and Matt, is that a reasonable interpretation of the uh, second half of the 20th century? Um, I, it, it's, it's a little extreme. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's, I mean, I will say that the Latin American development model ended up being very different from what China ended up pursuing, but I don't think that necessarily explains, I don't think their in interpretation of it necessarily is, is correct. I think also, even if that is what you think happened in Latin America, the situation in China now is so different from anything yeah. that's ever happened there that I don't really think it's a comparable situation. The idea that, that Chinese workers are, you know, going to are lazy and not producing enough and that they're, they're just taking from society. I mean, if we just look at Dumb. anything that we see about actually what's going on in the, the story of the Chinese economy of the past 30 plus years is actually that workers in China have been progressively squeezed and that all the instruments of state formal and informal have been used to take from workers and redistribute purchasing power that workers should have had to go towards local governments and businesses. And the reason they've been able to build up so much infrastructure or choose to build up so much infrastructure and, and real estate development and so forth is precisely because it's the flip side of taking from people who otherwise would have bought other things. Um, you know, there's Jordan, you've had on the show, uh, you know, Natalie Hell and Scott Rosell, and they're talking about, you know, the, the, the vast poverty, impoverishment of large swaths of rural China. And I mean, this is, I think, the, the natural flip side of all, all the you know, people say, oh, what's the cost of China over investing or what have you or spending too much investment not enough for consumption? And well, we know what the answer is, right? It's, it's actually, you know, shocking levels of ringworm in, in, in children and, you know, not having, you know, corrective vision um, treatments and things like that and people not knowing how to read. Uh, so that that is really the, the flip side here. And so I think there is this huge ideological problem here. I think there's also a structural problem on top of the ideology, which is that maybe, you know, just a little speculative, but if you have a very Leninist political system and a way of organizing the world, if you want to have your party being in control of the commanding height of the economy, because that's how you stay in charge of society, then your natural preference is going to be having economic activity concentrated in things that you can control. So very much at the government level or big businesses or things like that, and not so much having spending power dispersed among lots of consumers who buy what they want and then have businesses respond to what consumers want. So obviously it's not a hundred percent one or the other, but I think, you know, you can clearly see that over time it, that's generally been sort of the way that I think Chinese political economies evolve. I think it explains a lot of why is it that consumer spending in China is so low as a share of, of national output. And I think that creates all these other problems, including like, why is real estate such a big thing? I mean, the reason real estate has been so large residential real estate isn't because Lots of Chinese people need housing. I mean, sure, there, there are lots of Chinese people that need homes, but the reason this stuff is built is because it's mostly the only way that Chinese people can save money in a way that isn't either. The stock market has notoriously been filled with scams and speculation. Basically, the total return over time is close to zero for many, many years. Um, put money in the bank, which historically you get basically pitiful interest relative to inflation or growth or anything reasonable. So the only other thing you can put it in is, is, is housing. And so that's why Chinese house prices, in terms of if you look at like price per square foot relative, you know, in dollar terms, not even relative income, but just in dollar terms, it's actually pretty close to what it is in the United States, which is insane uh, because the incomes are so much lower there. Um, and that's because, of course, there's a lot more money going in there for these sort of investment saving purposes relative to those things. But that's a function of people not having the ability to consume as a function of the distribution of income being very skewed. A lot of people buying, you know, housing that hasn't been built yet because it's just where they put their money. And so that's... You know, these are kinds of the bigger, you know, among the, the reasons why they have this kind of uh, limitations here. And I, I think that the, the ideological issues at the top are certainly part of it, but it, there's a there's a lot of factors that are all sort of combined here, which I think are unfortunately going to be preventing what, as you said, economists in China think, or many economists in China think is sort of the right approach. I The thing that's highly unintuitive to Western observers is this idea that switching to consumption-based service industries would accelerate productivity. In 
you know, in ad advanced economies, what we've seen is that a, a long-term shift towards service industries has slowed productivity via the Baumol effect because service industries inherently have less opportunity for productivity gains than manufacturing, um, you know, uh, at the point where most developed economies are, you know, manufacturing productivity for the United States, for Japan, grows faster than services. Uh, but what I think that this logic flips for a developing country that has suppressed growth of its service industries, because we actually have gotten quite a bit of productivity growth in service industries. We just got it slower and we got it in the past. And we really never went through a phase where we suppressed service industries. We've had doctors and the Sears catalog for like hundreds of years. Like, we, you know, we've never really repressed service industries. So their productivity healthcare, right, has grown slowly, slowly, slowly over time. China has benefited from relatively little of this, which is one reason why their GDP is stuck at, you know, generously a little less than a third of ours, maybe even lower. Uh, one reason is because manufacturing productivity tends to converge pretty quickly uh, with the international average. And you see this in, um, so, so Danny Roderick, the, the economist, has some papers showing this. Basically, even in Latin America, even in Africa, anywhere, manufacturing productivity tends to reach the global frontier pretty easily. And, if, and for most countries, industrialization is a question of how much manufacturing can you have in your early development? Can you do this sectoral shift, this sectoral allocation where you get a lot of people to work in manufacturing? Well, China absolutely did, and it's arguable that they did this uh, you know, too much. And so uh, it is possible to, to go toward, you know, we, we think, oh, we need more manufacturing because the productivity goes up faster. Well, it's possible to go too far, right? It's possible to do too much manufacturing so that your productivity already converge, you know, like the, like Huawei phones are not, you know, appreciably worse than the iPhone, right? Or, or Chinese manufactured products are not appreciably worse. I mean, they're, you know, sometimes they're like a little bit worse because they're a little bit cheaper, lower end of the market stuff. But like, there's not a huge difference in productivity between China and, and advanced countries in terms of like making stuff in a factory. Sure. What there is, you know, their, their, their service industries just really suck. And, um, and so because instead of service industries, they've thrown, they, they've tried to substitute things that they thought were like I don't know, manly, warlike, or just, or just suited their ideological preferences or, or, you know, suited their political economy of being able to hurl money at the right people um, by, by building too much real estate, by building, I wouldn't say too much infrastructure, but maybe, um, maybe too fast or in the wrong places, but then especially real estate, you know, they built, too, they, they just built apartments and apartments and apartments instead of figuring out how to employ people in service industries like, you know, healthcare and insurance and, and, and whatnot. And um, and retail, and that's been a problem for the Chinese economy. And so, so it's, it go, runs counter to our intuition that they should actually shift towards service industries in order to boost productivity. But the point is, when you're a developing country that's that's not very good at service industries, but has largely converged in manufacturing, that's kind of what you should do. So I'm just going to briefly add that what's interesting is that despite all these sort of structural restraints and limitations on the Chinese service sector. You nevertheless have seen the emergence of some incredibly successful and globally competitive Chinese um, software companies, for example. And so, I mean, now yeah, this is a situation where you know the government sort of pushed back and they don't like the you know kids playing too many video games or whatever. But it's still striking that even despite all these things, you know, there clearly is a lot of potential there. It's you know, it's unfortunate. Like it's not like you know Chinese society is destined to be underdeveloped or anything like that. I mean, clearly there's there there it is there. It's just. Um, you know, the, the, you have a sort of structural problems with the way the the, the government, you know, what they incentivize and, and so forth. And that's, that's unfortunate, but it does suggest there's a lot of room for growth if, if things were different. Yeah. So let's let's take that and sort of come to like the peak China question. And, um, you know, looking at, let's let's just do this from a sort of like economic growth, like maximizing their potential perspective. I mean, um, let's say we're sort of like, you know, baking in like roughly the same sort of governance and ideological, uh, you know, economic ideological outlook, outlook that we've seen for the past past 10 years, for the next 10 years. Um, you know, does that mean we've 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 hit peak China? Is this sort of radical shift in in in, in the narrative about, uh, you know, China's future uh, sort of economic place in the world that we've seen for, you know, from 20 uh, from 2020 to now uh, justified, overblown? Uh, Noah, what's your what's your hot take? Um, I think that 
peak can mean many things. Is China as rich as it will ever get? No, it will get richer than this. Um, is China, ha have we seen peak China growth in terms of growth rates? Yes, we absolutely have. They, they will not return to 10% growth. Uh, they will only return to 6% growth very briefly and with, with heavy data manipulation massaging. Uh, so, so in that sense, we have seen peak China. The question is, have we seen, um, have we seen peak China in terms of its relative uh, sort of economic catch-up to to developed countries? In other words, is China's is China going to stabilize at sort of its current place in the economic hierarchy of the world? And I would say that if not now, then pretty close. Then, then we're we're pretty much at the peak now. I I would say yes, but that's that's much more open to argument, I think, um, uh, you know, because in terms of Japan, with retrospect, we saw peak Japan in the uh, in the late 80s, right? But it was not clear, that was not necessarily clear until decades later. So it's going to take a while for us to, to figure this out. I think that what we are seeing is a more nebulous, vague peak in terms of Chinese state capacity, you know, in industrial kind of effectiveness. Um, I think that the, China is currently capable of doing absolute marvels, and we are seeing those marvels getting done, things that no other country in the world can can possibly come close to matching. The The fact that they built, um, you know, the more than half the world's high-speed trains in just a few years, that, it, you know, the, the they have more than half the world's miles of high-speed train. That is incredible. They built it in a decade. And... That's just unfathomable. Japan couldn't do that. No one can do that. France couldn't do that. Um, you know, the the fact that their car industry exports have gone from basically an also ran, almost non-existent, to being the world's largest car exporter in, I think, two years. That is incredible. No other country can do that. Um, China is currently capable of producing industrial wonders. And in that sense, you know, when people talk about peak everyone thinks about the decline that comes after the peak, but it's possible to peak and plateau. You know, if you looked at, uh, say, Germany, uh, and you saw, like, in the 1880s, by that time, Germany was already the manufacturing powerhouse of Europe and one of the manufacturing powerhouses of the world and arguably the highest quality manufacturer, uh, the manufacturer of the most technologically advanced products on the planet by 1880. But you see it's not until... Really, it's not until, you know, Nazis you know, came in and messed it up <laughs> that you see them, that you see them really start to decline. Uh, Germany was still right at the top all the way up until, you know, the Nazi era. So, so these countries, and, and that was, that was over half a century. The countries can have very long, uh, you know, plateaus where they're capable of doing wonders, uh, you know, for, for many decades before, you know, things like aging or, you know, the shift of industrial clustering to other countries start to catch up with them. Right. You can you can be at that peak for a long time. You know, you mentioned aging. I think that's a very relevant point for thinking about China's situation. I mean, I completely agree with you that um, gro the growth rate peaked, you know, 2010. So people acting now like, oh, China's going to slow down. Growth. Like, I mean, has anyone looked at the numbers? I mean, clearly there's been a sustained slowdown for some time. Yeah, that it's something that, in fact. Right. And, and in fact, it was something that was desired by Chinese policymakers because they thought it was a problem, you know, that, that there was unbalanced and uneven growth before that. So, yeah, they mm. see some things now and be like, oh, man, China, it gives you a sense of who's sort of a tourist here. But uh, I, I also agree that I think it's certainly plausible that in terms of relative position that the Chinese economy may have reached sort of its zenith relative to say like the United States. But I think a lot of that is going to be based on um, a demographic outlook of the, the, the number of Chinese of working age and particularly the number of Chinese and sort of the, their 40 to 49 age cohort, which people have found repeatedly that's where like most of the productivity comes from. So, you know, congratulations, to everyone in their 40s, you're supposed to be contributing your maximum output there. So anyway, that, that population has been shrinking a lot in China already. I mean, that peaked in 2013 um, and is set to fall by like you know, I think the, the the people specifically in their forties. I believe, if I remember correctly, looking at the last um, UN World Population Prospects, is projected to fall something like two thirds between now and the end of the century. And so, even though the Chinese population as a whole is supposed to be much more stable, because essentially a lot of people are going to be aging. And so, if you look at that, it's it's very difficult to say, okay, this is. I mean, clearly you can have productivity gains to offset some of that. That's the promise of automation and so forth. But 
We've never seen anything like this before. I think it's going to be very challenging um, society-wide. Now, the living standards of any individual person in China might still continue to rise. Um, that's certainly possible. But if you're thinking about like relative power from sort of geoeconomic sense or whatever, that's going to be, I think, a, a big headwind um, is the demographic yep. side. Of course, on the productivity side, it's also not clear how much productivity increases we've actually had in China. I mean, there's there's issues of how you measure productivity, how much of it's attributable to capital deepening or what have you. But there are some estimates that claim that um, total factor productivity would essentially, if you, you net out improvements in education and, and um, growth in the capital stock, that's actually been essentially flat since like 2007. I don't know if that's right, but there are at least some credible estimates making that argument. And if that's the right- The world I mean, tables. Hmm? The pen world tables. Yeah, it, that's one. I mean, there's another, there's some other, yeah. I mean, basically if you, you look at this stuff and you say, okay, well, I mean, that's, that's, that's going to be another huge head. I mean, you can't really have a lot of growth going forward if, the, if you don't have, you literally no productivity growth there. So I don't, I mean, that would be sort of the big um, challenge. You know, Jordan, when you sent around before we started a list of topics, I was looking through, so I remember it, I'd written about this and I, I, I found a column from Barron's I'd written in early 2020 making this precise point about like, well, you know, maybe it won't, you know, this will be sort of the, close to the, the top, I mean, or like 2040 or something. I mean, who knows, right? But it's certainly plausible um, that, that, that from that perspective that, you know, peak China, although I'm, I'm sort of reticent to use that term because of what, it, you know, it sounds like yeah. it's going to be all downhill from there or whatever. But I, I think that, you know, thinking about, you know, what the future is going to hold, um, you know, there are a lot of situations in the past, we have a period of rapid growth and people say, oh, it's going to go on forever. Um, and then it doesn't. Right. I mean, you think about when when Khrushchev made his we will bury you speech in 56 and you look at what happened after that. And, you know, if you there are a lot of ways of measuring this and there are disputes about whether these measurements are accurate. But you look at the um, the Madison database of, of GDP per capita um, across countries and for the Soviet Union as a share of the United States, you saw a huge convergence right after that, actually. So it looked like he was right. It's like, oh, well, this massive convergence and something like 20 percentage point increase um, in GDP per capita of the Soviet Union relative to the United States between 56 and like the mid seventies. But then it stopped and then eventually went down a lot. And so, and if you look at where we are now, just for, for Russia, not for the Soviet Union as a whole, um, you know, pre Ukraine war, it was basically in relative position comparable to where we were in like 1910 relative to the United States. So like that was, that was the end of that. Um, China right now, I mean, starting from much lower base, but seeing a pretty dramatic convergence over the past couple decades, but I mean, it could stop. I don't know. I mean, yeah. maybe it won't, but I mean, I, I, the baseline assumption that, oh, countries that are poor are naturally going to keep converging and have, is it something that actually you don't see very often? Um, it's happened so, a few times and it's noteworthy, but it's not, it shouldn't be the baseline assumption. Yeah. So to continue on this sort of Soviet Union analogy, like just because like relative, you know, share of global GDP um, maybe peaked in the 1950s for the Soviet Union doesn't mean that, uh, no? 70s. No, 50s. So, sorry. So I was saying he said the speech in 56 and then from then until 70, maybe I wasn't clear, but from then oh, until okay, 76. Okay, okay, gotcha. The so, Soviets okay, so, kept you know, catching up until the late 70s. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Then they stopped then they catching stopped. up One more after time. the, right. so, in the, in um, the late 70s and early yeah, 80s, they it stopped basically catching the, up. Yeah, convergence peaked basically when they invaded Afghanistan. It, gotcha. That was not necessarily related. That was, no. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, well, I mean, related. but it's an interesting, uh, Oh, right. Because so so the causation runs the other way, because when you're you know, when you're feeling your oath, you know, you're right. feeling your strength, you're like, well, I could I could let, let's let's take this geopolitical power out for a spin, baby, and see what we can conquer and yeah. dominate. And in fact, the whole from 56 until then. Right. I mean, the whole Brezhnev doctrine of, oh, yeah, we're going to go in all these other countries and do stuff. And it seemed. Yeah, exactly. And then it peaks and then they stop. So I think that is very and much. And then related. they stop. Which, you know, the Soviet has... Union's peak came quick. The thing is that people, I think that we expect these peaks to be to be over quick because the, the USSR and Japan, shortly after they peaked, it was only about a decade after they peaked that we started to say, okay, this is a country in decline, relative decline. Um, but I think that's a mistake because if you go back and look at other powers, I mean, the United States lasted at its peak for arguably a century before it went into decline. Um, and then I think that, you know, Germany lasted for half a century. And, um, and you know, then you can even go back earlier to that. You look at Britain. I would say Britain lasted arguably a century. And so so these peaks can last a long time. The, the USSR and Japan were kind of special cases, I think. 
um, Japan may be a little more relevant than the Soviet Union. In fact, we should talk about Japanification a little bit, Jordan. Uh, Soviet Unionification, which does Sovietification, which doesn't make as as handy a, a term. It's not as cute. But um, I think that the the main analogy there is that capital deepening will only get you so far. And I would like to to mention that all the you know all of the capital that you've seen China build. All of those just infinite miles of high-speed train, infinite forests of, of apartment towers, you know, giant gleaming, you know, new factories with robots and stuff like that, that will depreciate. P what people don't understand is that capital depreciation really sets in after, what, 20 years? Um, you know, physical depreciation. You can amortize your depreciation any time that the government allows you to, and we, you, you know, but that's just a financial trick. The actual physical depreciation of capital in terms of infrastructure, machinery, and structures happens you know after about 20 years stuff starts to get really worn out depends and how well you built it in the first place too right i mean it could be sooner. how well you build it uh japan built their stuff very very well china did not they built china china is china's like the united states in that they build quick shitty and cheap you know i i've as an aside i've often argued that china is the country that is most similar to the united states in the entire world and that basically like people think that they're these two alien civilizations due to clash of civilizations. No, it's a similar country. Everyone's just wearing khaki shorts and a t-shirt and Crocs and going to the mall and driving to the mall like, and, and watching, you know, Fox news or whatever and saying like, my country's great cause it's big. And then dreaming big unrealistic dreams of getting rich. No, China and America are the same, except in China, the Republicans always win. But anyway, that is a, that is a, you know, like, stop playing, stop playing video games. Stop being gay on TV. No, stop being gay. Be manly. Like, no, it's just, you know, welfare is Japanification. bad. What, what are your other, what are your other analogies? Noah? what else Sorry, you got? I, I, I'm on a little sidetrack rant here, but that's my impression of China is it's, um, but okay. So, so Japanification, um, the thing is that most of our narratives about what happened to Japan in the 80s and 90s are incredibly exaggerated and, and to some to the point of being wrong. So Japan was this export powerhouse. No, it had a trade surplus for financial reasons. Its exports as a percent of GDP were always quite low. Which is like China as it's been since about the past 15 years. Yes. In the 2000s, China was an export powerhouse. Then after 2008, China's like, no, actually, we're just going to build a bunch of housing and infrastructure instead, and in which they did. And so they shifted from being an export powerhouse to being, you know, their, their exports as a percent of GDP are not that low. It's like 20%, maybe? I think it's like 15. Or it's, it's pretty oh, it's it going, has it, it gone down? It, it might have gone up recently. Well, so the pandemic oh, yeah, just changed things a little bit. But yeah, it's, it's been in sort of 15, 20% range, which is pretty low. Yeah, okay. That, and that's, um, that's yeah. getting down toward Japan range, which is not that open an economy. You know, most of your, like, you know, India is higher than that. Um, and so exports as a percent of GDP are not that high. It's not export powerhouse. But Japan is never an export powerhouse, really. Japan never had a high rate of exports to GDP as long as we've been keeping track of that, right? They always, you know, Japan's exports to GDP is the highest now that it's been since we started keeping track, I think. And so, um, you know, we just, they, they had a trade surplus, but that's net, not total. And so, um, and, and but but, you know, what happened with Japan, there was, there was a shift toward real estate, but it was much more, much less in terms of real estate construction, which has already always been pretty robust in Japan and remained robust. It was toward real estate finance, which was somewhat like China, but China did that a lot more. If you look at real estate and related industries as a percent of GDP, Japan's peaked in the in the teens. China's peaked at like almost thirty percent of GDP. You know, more more than twice. So so there's just. China, in that sense, is more Japanified than Japan ever was, and um, in terms of uh, in terms of you know this this real estate crash, um, Japan had a real estate crash. Japan had a stock crash. A lot of this was related to the way that corporations finance stuff in Japan, and you know now I've just thought of a new thought, which is uh, you know approximately sort of truthy which is that China's burst now is more like, um, it is really more like America, you know, a, a double version of America's bust in the 2000s than it is like Japan's bust. Because Japan's bust was fundamentally a corporate bust, right? It was corporations were using real estate as collateral 
to borrow to do industrial expansion for things that they were mostly selling in Japan. That was a process that couldn't continue and was, was continued too long by a bunch of weird financial practices that Japan had, such as cross-shareholding, evergreening of loans, blah, 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 blah. Um, so Japan's story was always a lot more subtle and complex than people thought. China's story is much more similar to you know the, our, our typical story of Japan. You had this country that, you know, where where just overbuilt uh, or or just had a massive real estate bubble from just normal people bidding up the prices of housing. Right? Are, are you okay, Jordan? Uh, okay. Jet lag. Yeah, keep going. Sorry. Oh, jet lag. Okay. So then, yeah. So you had um, and 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 you know you really had a a um, you really had a banking system sort of uh of failure in China. That in, in Japan, you, you had sort of this, you had a lot more complex stuff going on. China fits the Japan story much more cleanly than Japan did. So I completely agree that there are a lot of differences between China and Japan. And I think that, Noah, you did a very good job explaining like what actually happened with Japan, which is different from, I think, a lot of the common narratives. I do think actually, if you zoom out, though, there are actually some interesting similarities. Because if we think about why was it that so much of growth in Japan in the 70s and 80s was coming from, you know, this kind of corporate investment funded by borrowing. So much of the growth in China similarly is coming from the construction and investment of things as opposed to household consumptions financed by different kinds of borrowing. I think there they actually see some some similarities. I think there's some very important differences. I mean, Japan was basically a democracy that was not repressive. You didn't have a lot sure. of holistic government policies deliberately trying to, you know, squeeze consumers. But, you know, you did have a situation... Um, there is a similarity, and particularly the way the banking system is structured, of essentially saying, okay, households are going to put money in the banking system. They're not going to get a good return. And then you're going to use that to create some kind of surplus that essentially transfer wealth and, and purchasing power from households to end users elsewhere, whether it's local governments or businesses or what have you. And that actually is a kind of a similarity there in, in terms of how that played out. And then, you know, the thing is, you make these investments. Um, in either case, you know, those investments are going to be worthwhile if you actually have some end consumption down the line to, you know, to justify it. And in both cases, you have a situation where the, the, the system that was so good at financing and encouraging that investment perversely made that it more challenging for those investments to end up turning out to be worthwhile because you didn't have the consumer spending, you know, later on. And I well, think that's so, so Japan point. never really had financial oppression in that sense. Um, in, in China, everyone saves their money in real estate. In Japan, everyone saved their money in bonds, and that was mostly government bonds. Um, that is due, you know, the stock market was always fine. Like, you know, it was never never a joke right. like in China. It was always fine. Um, but the reason people saved most of their money in bonds had to do with the fact that Japan has this system where they demolish real estate so it doesn't appreciate, so people put their money in bonds instead, mostly government bonds. It was never, it was never financial oppression. The government never did anything to, like, make this happen it was just sort of the way things shook out um you know given japan's real estate policies you couldn't save your money in real estate maybe i'm 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 curious your sense my understanding is that in prior period particularly when japan was going relatively rapidly that the interest rates that you'd get on a bank deposit which was a relatively popular form of saving for households were unusually low and that that also led to that created you know a wedge so that banks could lend at relatively low interest rates relative to growth rates i'm talking about like the sort of pre oh, that, that, like that's correct that, that that's right but it wasn't because the government made you save in a bank um it was because the government would knock down your house every 20 years and build a new house in its place to improve earthquake safety technology and also possibly to give money to construction companies i don't know but the point is that people real estate was always a consumer durable more like a car in Japan. Mm. And because the stock market is, has always been a relatively small piece of savings for anyone. And the stock market was fine in Japan. They had a, and they had a stock bubble too, you know, at the same time. But, but, um, the reason Japan had a real estate and land bubble was, was because, um, of, of the corporate stuff that we talked about before. They never, they never, the, 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 the bank deposits were, or, or, or let's say bond rates in general, just, you know, anything with a interest rate, with a fixed interest rate had, was, were, had low interest rates primarily because um, you couldn't save your money in real estate. So everyone piled into bonds. So bonds didn't have to like raise interest rates to attract capital, to attract savings. And so it was much more the natural 
you know, just outcome of of a place that builds a lot of housing. If if you have massive expansion of housing supply and uh, you know such that you can't save your money in real estate, people will go save their money in bonds, which drives down interest rates. And so that's really what happened with Japan. Um, no, but there was also some other stuff like home bias, like people, did, you know, the, the, the famous carry trade wasn't really nearly as big as people think. And so people wouldn't like save their money overseas. And actually then they started to, which resulted in some weird stuff in the eighties, but let's not get too stuck on Japan. Let's go back to the, the, the question of China. China fits this, this story pretty well, you know, with the financial repression, they really, they really, you know, pushed people toward real estate by making you get a crappy return on bonds. They were like, you're not going to get a good return on your bonds on your bank account. So where are you going to put your money? And the stock market's a joke. So where are you going to put your money? Um, real estate. And so, so China did that, whereas Japan almost did the opposite in that it was like, well, you're not going to be able to save money in, in your real estate because we're going to knock it down every 20 years. So, so in China, people were forced into saving in real estate and they saved all their money in real estate. Whereas in Japan, people couldn't save their money in real estate, so they saved all their money in bonds. I would just add one more thing about China that's relevant here, which is that the way local governments finance their operations is very much by taking mm -hmm. land and selling it, you know, seizing land in various ways and selling it to developers. Right. And that, that creates, that's a large chunk of their, their operating uh, revenues historically. And so that also creates a big incentive for creating this real estate. And of course, they're not very squeezed. Local governments are generally in China what pro provide most public services. They're, they're people who pay for most of the infrastructure investment. And they get, you know, they're getting very squeezed by the, you know, the, the situation here with real estate. So the, the linkage there is, is, um, is very important in explaining, you know, how they ended up in, in this situation as well. There's, there's a lot of, you know, they, they, for several decades, they've had a very strong incentive for boosting the real estate industry for their own, you know, as, as essentially right. a kind of fiscal policy. The real estate just did so much for the Chinese economy. It was the main way everybody saved their money. It was the way that local governments financed everything. Um, it, and it was the way that the, the central government did fiscal stimulus whenever there was a threat to the economy. They're basically, and it was like the source of jobs and employment for everybody. But basically, there were three weird ways in which real estate was special to the Chinese economy in ways that it wasn't special to other economies necessarily. And those things all combined. And that's why I always tell everyone real estate is what, real estate is not the only threat. It's not the only thing that slowed China's growth. It's not the only threat facing China now. But it is the reason for this slowdown. This is a real estate-driven slowdown. Would you agree with um, that? Yeah, I think if we're looking at like what's happened immediately in the past few years, there's a poll. Yeah, basically starting in 2021, the Chinese government said, we're going to crack down on real estate. And then they have, and that's led to a lot of other things. So in that sense, yes. I think also, though, zooming out why real estate is so important to the Chinese economy is reflective. It's essentially a symptom of these sort of other issues. Right. That we're talking about in terms of you know, if you don't have a consumer sector, if you don't have, you know, you, you have to have, there are only so many ways to generate GDP growth, which is the target and employ people. So if you, you right. can rule a lot of those other ones out, you're left with this. And right. So I think that's like the other sort of deeper reason for why they're in this situation. But yeah, if we're looking at just like with the past couple of years, then yes, I mean, you can just very clearly see it's it's the real estate. And, and, and I would say arguably since 2008, this this has been building since 2008. So um, let's, and, and in let's, terms of policy, even longer. So let's turn to uh, industrial policy now. So we've I've done a lot of other shows on China Talk about sort of what have been the uh, the reasons that the the Chinese uh, electric vehicle and semiconductor industry have been so successful. I'm curious, you know, for your perspective on like to what extent this is something that Western policymakers should be stressed out about, um, uh, and you know how you, you know like if is a you know from from your from, from your perspective is like a world beating chinese electric vehicle industry or a world beating you know uh leading edge fab capability in china um something that the us needs to stop not just for um you know uh, sort of amorphous military reasons which is what bis says when they do the um, semiconductor export controls but also from a sort of like long term i don't know like economic uh sort of growth trajectory uh, perspective. I don't think we when, need to be sorry, when thinking a... about this sort of like relative balance of economic uh, mm. uh, weight uh, in the, into the medium term. I don't think we need to be worried about the long-term, you know, economic, uh, you know, industrial competitiveness piece of this at all. Uh, I think that people are going to worry a lot about that, especially in Europe. Uh, I think that there, there is a gigantic freak out in Europe about Chinese 
you know, electric vehicles outcompeting Volkswagen, outcompeting the German car industry. That's a thing that's going to happen um, because, but I think that um, in terms of cars, ultimately the world tends toward an equilibrium where most cars are made where they are sold because cars are very heavy relative to the amount of, of price they command. The amount of economic value that you ship in a car per you know kilogram of weight is much, 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 much lower than for say processors, right? A processor, you know, can, can give you a, a little box of processors can give you more economic value than a car. And it's something like this, whereas a car I can't lift. Right. And so it should work out more, but, um, but then, uh, but, but a car is, um, is heavy and a battery is very heavy and ultimately it will not. And, and most cars are made where they are sold. And we look at these graphs of China's exports dominating the world, but we don't, but, but then you look at exports as a percent of total consumption and it's not that big. And so ultimately it will take only a small amount of Germany supporting Volkswagen and Volkswagen making some management changes and whatever they need to do, it's going to take only a little bit of that to take the car industry back from China. Because if you look at the history of America and Japan, you know, in the eighties, people were freaking out. Oh my God, everyone drives a Japanese car, blah, blah, blah. Fast forward just a couple of years and Japanese cars are the most American of any car. Like Toyota and Honda and Nissan have more American made stuff in them than GM and Ford by quite a bit because most car, cars are heavy and most cars are made where they are sold, no matter who owns the IP and like, you know, puts their brand on it. Um, and so, so in terms of like having a car industry, it's ultimately more about like branding and IP than about where the cars are actually made. They're going to be made close to where they're sold. The semiconductor industry is a very different animal because semiconductors are very light, very easy to ship, very easy to supply chain, tons of value in that little box of processors. And so that I think semiconductor industry is the, is the industry where, and, and they're also much more, I think, militarily relevant at this point. Uh, although, although maybe Matt will correct me, but, but, um, but I think that semiconductors are going to be the main sort of arena for competition between, you know, overall with the car thing being like a little bit of sideshow with like Europe worrying about too many electric car imports. Yeah, on cars, I think one thing that's also worth worth noting is that at least as of now, the growth in Chinese car exports is entirely been a function of the fact that Chinese production of cars has been flat over the past few years and Chinese domestic demand for cars has gone down. It's not <laughs> right. actually a situation they where- the cars. <laughs> right. It's not like they've suddenly increased their total production of motor vehicles. I mean, maybe that will change in the years ahead. I don't know. But like as of, you know, July, August of this year, that's that's what the numbers are showing. And so that's also some, you know, perspective here in terms of, you know, how this is playing out, right? If you just, you built all this capacity to make cars, you can sell them a lot more cheaply because, you know, your labor costs are lower, et cetera. And then you just, squeeze your domestic market, you have an extra, you're like, okay, fine, we'll send them abroad. Like, why not? Right. I mean, like, that's going to be super cheap. Uh, the price point, like a BYD, um, you know, electric vehicle is like what, like 10 grand or something, I think. Right. If you, if you can, I mean, that's obviously going to just outcompete a Volkswagen, no matter in any circumstance. Right. So it doesn't take a lot. I mean, most of those exports are not going to Europe. They're basically none of them are going to the U S they're going to third markets, but, but still like, I mean, that's, that's sort of the thing there. I mean, historically the military application of having a car industry is that you could have those factories make tanks. I don't know how relevant or helpful that's going to be going forward or that how much people should think about that as a point of concern. I don't know. But like if we're thinking about like the the growth of the Chinese auto industry, I mean, it's, it's been growing for a while, but essentially if you look at the production numbers, it's been sort of flat since 2018. So, um, I mean, and quite frankly, like we need globally more electric vehicle manufacturing capacity because if you want to turn over the existing fleet of motor vehicles globally from what it is now which is overwhelmingly internal combustion engine towards mostly battery electric vehicles you're going to need to have way more production than we have now um most new production as a share of the existing fleet is pretty small right just for anything so if you want to turn over the whole fleet like that's so the fact that you're having more production is not itself bad i mean i think it's if you're a policymaker in a, in a country that's not china you want to make sure that you maintain your own domestic production because there's good things for that. But I mean, the fact that China's producing more is not inherently a problem. I mean, I also don't think it's inherently a problem that, you know, China's producing or maybe producing, you know, functional, uh, you know, commercial aviation. I mean, you, you know, the, the, the idea that you have a Boeing Airbus duopoly, it's not obvious why that's inherently good for the world. I mean, I think it's good for, you know, the U.S. to have 
the, man, the ability to manufacture airplanes and, and have that supply chain and everything in the U.S. But I also don't think that there's any reason why you would have you want to have less production in total or less competition. So I, I think that we can have a sort of positive sum view of this. And if it takes industrial policy and, and China's part to get there, or for that matter, on our part to prevent that, you know, the destruction of what currently exists, then that's fine. I mean, you can look at semis too, right? I mean, the semiconductor industry is sort of perhaps more than any other industry, one that wherever it exists requires extreme levels of government subsidies. Um, people say, oh, well, there's a comparative advantage for building semis in Taiwan. It's like, okay, well, Taiwan is basically a jungle island with no industry whatsoever, you know, 100 years ago. I don't know why we're talking about the like, comparative advantage in building the most high-tech components ever. Like, they, they just made a lot of effort to make it happen, right? You change your comparative yeah. advantage. So, I mean, you can see that in all sorts of, you know, things. And so, if you want to have a semiconductor industry in your country, like, it, it just, for some reason, apparently requires yeah. lots of subsidies and other things. I mean, Dirty little secret. Half the time when people claim a comparative advantage underneath it is a racial stereotype. Yeah, I mean, maybe. There's a pull quote. There's a pull quote. Which is downstream of government policy from like 150 years ago, I think is the... um, uh... Well, I mean, in reality, government policy matters a lot. But in people's minds, you know, like Taiwanese people, uh, you know, and and, and by extension, Chinese people are able to comprehend how semiconductors work in a way that like, you know, just like dumb people in Arizona are not. And for some reason, I guess they think Japanese people aren't. But it's, it's dumb, but people think this way. Um, people think like, oh, yeah, those Taiwanese are just really, really good at, at chips. And like, I mean, yes, but it's a it's a learned skill. And the reason the incentive for learning was there was because of government policy. It's not like Taiwanese people are born knowing how to, to you know, do semiconductor engineering. Um, let's talk about 2024. I don't think I've t- talked about it. Um, That's next year. Is it? though? Holy shit. Know. That's next year. <laughs> 2024. I mean, I, or if you want to be, it's two and a half months, right? Or three, three months. It's almost upon us. I, so, I can remember when 2024 was cyberpunk future. And you know what? Honestly, the, the present feels like that cyberpunk future that I imagined for 2024 when I was like a kid in the 90s. With, with geriatric presidents um, uh, ruling, ruling, and, uh, mean, ruling over us all. Well, Blade Runner was set in 2019, right? I mean, wasn't that? Yeah. So, Attack so, chips on fire off the you shoulder know, of Orion. Like, how much does a trump presidency change any of the sort of like relative national power global influence uh economic growth trend lines that we've been talking about for the past uh 45 minutes matt you take that uh, i mean oh, that's a, a Noah, of... i feel like that's a noah question yeah no? oh that's a that's a me question it does right. yeah, more I... like what do you write about so i yeah. guess i mean uh the answer is who knows because trump is a chaos agent who knows what he'll do um we don't know that the a next Trump presidency would be like the last Trump presidency. What we saw in the last Trump presidency was essentially two things. Trump would start culture war fights and Trump would vaguely direct economic policy in the direction of things that like people yelled about in the early 90s when Trump was at his peak of, of you know, wealth and influence. And um, and so Trump was very much stuck in the early 90s. So Trump tried to start a trade war with Japan. <laughs> like, you know, uh, so uh, which hasn't been a competitive threat for like decades. It's like Trump is dumb. And, and so he took all these things that he saw in the early 90s and he he got Robert Lighthizer to go, you know, make some tariffs and like yell at some of these countries. And so and, and then in the background, we had the security state building the foundation for the Biden policies, which we so for export controls that that was come up. It was the security state that came up with that, you know, um, especially deemed exports. That's like that's actually the big one uh, that we never talk about. And um and it was, uh, or, or Scythius, investment restrictions, that was all the security state that came up with that. So while Trump was like reeling against the deep state or whatever, the, it was the security services that were actually making his, his China policy, or at least the parts of it that would really endure and have an impact. Um, and, the, and the military, you know, the military was, was thinking about this. They were very much thinking about the balance of technology between the United States and China. And so we could see that again. Also, the military ran Operation Warp Speed, which is why it worked. But um, we could see that again. Uh, or we could see Trump being completely controlled by foreign, you know, by like the 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 Axis powers here, Russia and China, and we could see, uh, you know, Trump basically intentionally trying to sabotage any attempts to compete with China, uh, you know, or or you know, sabotage like ex- remove export controls, blah blah blah, claiming he'd made a deal with Xi Jinping or like you know, just some whatever bullshit, because someone is slipping him this idea from within his administration. And, you know, he's he's a geriatric president as well. So he's, you know, going to be let probably weaker 
I would say, uh, in a second term and more susceptible to people like whispering in his ear, like ideas to do. He was somewhat susceptible to that this first time, but more this time. Um, so my guess would be that some that, that China and Russia are going to get their guys in there and have him drop export controls and have him basically drop attempts to economically or to, to militarily slash economically compete with China. Um, despite the fact that he ran on like an aggressive anti-China platform in 2016, I think he'll pivot. I think that uh, guys will whisper in his ear to like drop all this stuff. That's my guess, but who knows? He's a chaos agent, so it's fundamentally an unknown quantity. It's it's you know sort of a roll of the dice. Yeah, I would say based on what we saw from the last time that he was in office and what he said in the past few years, I mean, one thing that I think is interesting is that on China, despite rhetoric that was very hostile, he did repeatedly say he was friends with Xi Jinping. He mostly blamed his predecessors rather than anything the Chinese government had done. Um, he was made it went out of his way to basically give China carte blanche to do what the Chinese government wanted to do in Tibet and Hong Kong and and in right. uh, the Uyghur um, parts of the country. So the idea that Trump is tough on China is, I, you know, that's people sort of falling falling for a certain set of rhetoric rather than actual policy um, things that occurred. And so I, I would be sort of wary of 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 that. I think on yeah. you know a very different way, but also yep. relevant is it, that. Oh yeah. Well, let's just stay on that for a second, because I think personnel is going to be really interesting and weird in a, in a Trump 2024, because like, I have no idea, like who is left, who is going to take, you know, the assistant secretary of state well, for East Asia or national security advisor, or secretary of defense. I mean, you know, Matt Pottinger, right? Like he quit on uh, January 7th. Um, and uh, you, you need to get him on the show, by the way, but uh, it's in the works. Um uh so uh you know it, it, it's a it's a weird dynamic um where uh you know I think Noah the sort of like like uh uh authoritarian curious thing um was you know obviously like very um uh aggressively resisted by the deep state but like if like he decides to fire the entire federal government and like the folks he hires to um uh, to, to lead these shelled out agencies are just like, I don't know, like wing nuts. Um, uh, it's it's really uncertain. You know, you could you could yeah. you could you could you could bring in folks who want to start World War Three with China. You could bring in folks who um, you know couldn't couldn't care less about um, uh, anything revol revolving like you know America's role in in, in East Asia. So it's a, a very open, I think, for me exactly how this. The, might the play other out. thing I think that relates to this, and, and you know, it looked like it's the other side of the world, but to the extent that I think presumably a and not just Trump, but probably many of the Republicans who are currently running would be relatively pro-Russian uh, and want to pull back any kind of support there. I mean, you figure that one of the main foreign policy accomplishments of the Biden administration has been getting Europe and the U.S., you know, the G7, you know, extended basically all on the same page. That would be undone, probably. And that would have a lot of consequences for a lot of things, including for the U.S. relationship with China. And more important is the U.S. ability to and the ability of the democracies in general to actually project power because you talk about like the u.s being in relative decline to global gdp or whatever if you think about the u.s as the leader the you know the first among equals of a large coalition of of sort of like-minded countries that group as a whole is extraordinary is overwhelmingly powerful compared to any other potential grouping in the rest of the world but that only works if all those countries are basically willing to coordinate and be on the same page so if you don't have that, which seems like a highly likely possibility, then you open up a lot of potential problems. And that is, I think, another thing to be concerned about above and beyond all the points that you, know, you and Noah mentioned. Noah, like, how, how do you do what you do? I don't know, man. Sorry, I'll be, I'll be more specific. So Noah, like, like, you know, Matt and I, like, I write like one thing a week. Matt writes like, you know, one and a half things a week. Um, you're cranking out like very high quality content, not all of which I agree with, but like, like very cogent takes and explainers, uh, you know, three, four, sometimes five times a week. If you're like really going at it, like talk me through your process methodology. Like how can, how can the rest of the world learn from the, uh, the Noah Smith uh, production uh, function when it comes to, um, uh, explaining things about, uh, Asia and the economy and U S politics and God knows whatever else you write about and oh, Japanese well urban design. I don't I, I don't make my own graphs. 
uh, and Matt makes his own graphs. So basically that, you know, that takes a whole lot of time, but, but I will say Matt's graphs are amazing and, um, and you should definitely read his blog even just for the graphs, but you know, of course it's, it's great in general and you should read it. Uh, the answer is that I don't know. Um, if you just don't have anything else to do with your time, then maybe you spend all your time just reading about various, you know, a million different topics and then get a functional literacy with a lot of those topics. And so I think a lot of it is the fact that, you know, I just, I don't have kids. I don't have, I don't have, you know, anything else to do. Um, and so I'm just like reading this, this stuff kind of obsessively all day. Uh, but also, um, I, I would say that the, the key to, to writing a lot is to get annoyed a lot and to just be like, okay, this, this is wrong. This needs correcting. This is wrong. It's that old comic of someone has said something wrong on the internet. That is my entire reason for existence. Like, that's why I do what I do. It's not for money. It's not for love. It's not to like help the world, blah, blah, blah. It's because someone has said something wrong and they must be corrected now. I'm half joking, but that is, you know, <laughs> like, uh, will it, a desire to think by engaging with other points of view is an important part of the motivation. And I feel like you know that opens you up to being comfortable. I don't know. I feel like Matt and ours, like Matt, the threshold that Matt and I have for like having an opinion on something and like the degree of, I don't know. I don't want to say degree of confidence. Yeah. Like maybe, maybe you're just like more confident and comfortable having takes on stuff. But I, I feel like I really need to like build myself up and like, like uh, psych myself to be like, all right, I'm going to have an opinion and put it online. But this must be just innate. Or can I like grow this in myself? Like, is there a cultivation routine that I should, um, you know, engage in to like be more comfortable, like having takes on things? Well, no. So, so the, the joke, which is also the joke of the name of my blog, No Opinion, is that the vast majority of things I just don't have an opinion about. And the thing is that any, anything that exists that I have an opinion on, you will have read my opinion on because I write about so many different topics, right? So I have, so, so any opinion that I have, you will know. I, on all the other stuff I don't write about, it's not like I have some secret opinion that I'm concealing. I just, you know, I just didn't have an opinion. So, so I write a hundred percent of the opinions I have and then just don't have opinions on most of the other stuff. And then, you know, so like the, the key is as soon as you have an opinion, like write it and write why you had it. And I think that, uh, you know, not to segue too much, but I think that takes care of the epistemic confidence uh, idea too. And some bloggers try to say epistemic confidence, low epistemic confidence, high, you know, no one understands what that even means, much less believes that that's your actual level of epistemic confidence. Right. So instead, so, so like Scott Alexander, no one, no one, you know, it's a, it's a noble effort, but no one trusts it. And so instead what you have to do is lead people through your thought process, show them how you arrived at your opinion that you have in your writing and then they'll know when you're just going out on a limb and tossing something out versus when there's something you know a lot about because when there's something you know a lot about you'll show them that you know a lot about it because you go through this process of showing them how you arrive at this opinion that's my style of writing it's like a um it's like i'm it's a it's an extended stream of consciousness style where i'm just telling you like you know i decided that that the the new huawei phone uh, didn't doesn't mean that export controls are a failure and here's how I got to that decision and then I just sort of lay it out that's what I do in today's post uh, if you want to check that out but um, but then all my most of my posts are basically like that and I think that that means that I'm very efficient with the opinions I do have um, that was that was cold um, cold uh, in no, what way I, I don't know I just like uh, I don't know I feel like I have to I have to I, there's something in my writing where I feel like I have to hide that and I have to be I like, like, Oh no, like than me though. I, my perception of you is like that. You're, you're just like the, the amount well, but, but of I think what I do is like a, a lot of it. A lot of what I do is like, I do like translations or I do like summaries of other things. It's like, it's less like Jordan Schneider's view of the situation. Um, uh, or, you know, I, I have guest columnists and stuff. View. What? When I read you saying, translating those things or reporting those things, I see it as Jordan Schneider's view, even if you don't see it that way. So right. here I am thinking that you're tossing out a million opinions a second, and you don't think you've tossed out an opinion at all. You just think you shared a link. I'm Man, like, oh, Jordan Schneider says this is right. This if is you confuse Jordan Schneider with uh, Chairman Rabbit, that's uh, interesting. I, I, I never read Chairman Rabbit. It's too high, too high output. But, um, but I approve of the rabbit. The rabbit is good. Um, but no, Jordan, everyone else thinks that you are an opinion machine. They already think you're doing it. 
Okay. All right. Well, I'll just I, I guess I'll keep going on my merry way then. Uh, yeah, you're you're all, you're already doing it. I mean, like you know, you your stuff sounds more opinionated than um than uh Bill Bishop. You know, the the well very famous well known China pundit puts out a huge amount of output. He feels like someone who's re, who's just like reporting the news, and whereas you feel m more somewhat reporting the news, but a little more toward the opinion side than him. So I'd say you're already doing what I do. So I wouldn't necessarily ask how I do it because you do it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Anyway, I think I think we'll I think we'll there. call it there. Um. Uh. Noah, do you have a song to take us out on, reflecting your uh uh work process? Um. Or the future of the Chinese economy. The future of the Chinese economy. <laughs> or a Trump twenty or a, or a second Trump term. T take your take your pick for uh, my inspiration. Um. It's the end of the world as we know it. I, I swear I to God, literally fine. half of the guests I ask, that's the song that they give me, which I think is like, I, I, does that have to know. be the China Talk theme? It's too depressing. No, because I, right, I, 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 I can't sing the Who's Wolf Totem because I can't sing in Mongolian. That's the real one. All right, that's the song, Wolf Totem by the Who. It's like, basically, rough translation, we're going to fuck you up. Noah Smith of No Opinion, Matt you, Klein of Overshoot. Strike you Thank with you the so power of heaven. Part of China Talk.
Always.